Well, thank you all for being here this morning. It is great to have you with us at uh, River Oaks today. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, I'll just direct you to that. Uh, there's an outline of the message on the, on the back and a tear-off strip entitled, Hey, I'm Here. Uh, we always appreciate it if you fill these out, even if you're here every week. And uh, you can drop those in the basket. that will come around at the end of the service. We're beginning today a short summer series of messages on two New Testament books, the books of First and Second Timothy. Both were written by the Apostle Paul to his young son in the faith, as he called him, a uh, young man who began traveling with Paul, and Paul began mentoring and teaching. And they're wonderful letters because there's this pastoral guidance being given by Paul, now the older uh, leader, to his young uh, disciple in the faith, Timothy. The letters of First and Second Timothy, along with the letter to Titus that follows those, those three books are typically called the pastoral epistles because in them the Apostle Paul is giving guidance for what life should be like in the local church. We begin this morning with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and you'll see the words on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been instructed. Now, here in the first chapter, we, we find the, Paul talk, the Apostle Paul talking about the, the law of God. He, when he talks about the law of God, he's referring to the laws given through Moses to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And uh, we talked about the Old Testament last week and why it's so very important as Christians who live on this side of the coming of Jesus to understand and value and appreciate the Old Testament and have an understanding of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The Bible is a unified whole. God chose to give us 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. And we'll talk more uh, this morning as we go through the book of 1 Timothy about the application of the law of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, at the end of the verses I just read, 
there were a couple of words that, that may have caught your attention in per, particular, and uh, we're going to talk about one of those next week because it's just one of those topics that you can't simply uh, read over and forget about. The Apostle Paul addressed in verse uh, 10 and 11, homosexuality. And uh, just a, a bit of a heads up for, for next week, uh, those of you who, who typically have kids in the service with you, uh, and if they've never been to Kids Rock, it might be a good day to let them visit Kids Rock. There will be nothing graphic, of course, said whatsoever, but just want to give you a little heads up that we um, touch on that topic briefly. And uh, today, briefly, one of the other subjects that he mentioned there when he addresses enslavers. What does the Bible really teach about slavery? And I'll explain in a few minutes why I think it's really important to understand that. But let's go through these first 11 verses quickly. The Apostle Paul's main concern in writing these letters to the churches is that truth be taught in the church. Twice in these first 11 verses, he refers to doctrine. When you see the word doctrine in the Bible, think of it as teaching. A doctrine is simply a, a biblical teaching. So a large part of his purpose, his motivation in writing these letters is to give and, and maintain and set in place right doctrine in the church. And he writes again, I, I wanted you, Timothy, to, to remain at Ephesus because already people were coming in, uh, taking away from Paul's teaching, detracting from it, leading people astray into other ideas. The Apostle Paul was the person, more than any other, whom God chose to, to set in place doctrine, understanding about the gospel for his church. Prior to his conversion, Paul the Apostle was a rising star in Judaism. He was apparently a brilliant man, well taught in the Hebrew Scriptures, a member of the sect of the Pharisees, learned legalists within the Jewish religion, and he was a persecutor of the church. But on the Damascus Road, he was confronted by a blinding light and the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul became the great apostle Paul. God used his great knowledge of Hebrew scripture, what we call the Old Testament, and the work of his spirit in Paul to give us doctrine in our New Testament, teaching, understanding of the gospel, understanding that it's by grace we're saved through faith, not by works. And so the Apostle Paul is writing these letters to uh, encourage Timothy to maintain right teaching, right doctrine in the churches. There are two particular errors the Apostle Paul is going to address in these letters. And the same errors have been, uh, appear throughout the history of the church and still appear today. One of those errors is legalism. That is trying to work your way into God's favor. Uh, this one, the Apostle Paul seemed to be dealing with perhaps more than anything else. Later in 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, he's going to say to Timothy, he's going to write to Timothy that in later times some will depart from the faith by de devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And he goes on to describe these teachings. 
Those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Two words in that statement. Forbid and require are characteristic of legalistic thought. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But there were those that came into the church's teaching, yes, Jesus is fine, Jesus is good, Jesus is important. Yes, you must accept him, but you must do this and you must not do this. Adding requirements for salvation, adding to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, legalism. Apostle Paul is often dealing with that. But another error that he has to address, and he does so when he's writing to Timothy, is what we might call lawlessness. That is, unrestrained sin, sometimes presuming upon the grace of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. He goes on to write, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. People who have the appearance of being a little bit religious, but it doesn't affect, it doesn't change their lives. And the Apostle Paul is teaching us that both these things are errors. And he goes on in this first chapter to teach us that faithful teaching of God's Word should lead to growing love, purity, and faith. And he says the aim of our charge is love. Love is the defining quality of a mature and growing follower of Jesus Christ. But it is not love without purity. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about the Son of God coming to this earth and giving his life on a cross and shedding his blood, paying the price for our sins so we might be considered just and righteous before our holy God. It's based upon the grace of God alone. But when a person receives Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit then indwells that person's life. So life change occurs. Having received the grace of God, there's growth in godliness. There's growth toward Christ-likeness. Those who've received the Spirit of God begin to reflect increasingly the nature and the likeness of Jesus, growing love and purity and faith. And then the, the Apostle Paul refers again to the Old Testament law. And he says something really interesting here. He says the law is good, but, it, but it's got to be used lawfully. The Old Testament is good, he's saying, but it must be understood and applied in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week that there are those today who really dismiss the relevance and value and importance of the Old Testament for Christians. 
in part because I think it's difficult for many to reconcile what they see in the Old Testament with what they see in the New Testament. Someone who I know quite well, not a member of our church, person who's involved in their, their church quite a bit, said to me uh, quite confidently, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. But of course, I disagree with that. There's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He does not change. He says, I, the Lord your God, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's perfect without sin, without shadow. He's unchanging. There's continuity between the Old and New Testament. It's important to our understanding uh, to be able to appreciate how the law of God leads us to Christ, leads us to the New Testament. So Paul writes these words. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, as we read that just a moment ago. So I want to stress this point that we understand and value all of Scripture in light of the gospel of Jesus. Now, what does he mean when he says the law is good if it's used lawfully? What are proper uses of the law of God? One very important use of the law of God is that it shows us our need for the gospel. In Romans chapter 7, you'll see some verses where the Apostle Paul is, is writing uh, about the purpose of the law. He says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? And when he talks about the law here, again, he's talking about Old Testament writings of uh, Moses in particular. And in this particular verse, I think he has in mind the Ten Commandments. He says, is the law sin? Because he's been saying, you're not justified by keeping the law. So is the law bad? No, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. So what he's saying is that the Ten Commandments are like a great big searchlight that shone the light on my need, on my sin, and guided me to the grace of God. He said, I would have not, have not have known sin without the law. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so he later says that the law is like our, our guardian, our, our schoolmaster, one version says, our teacher. It, it prepares us for Christ. It brings us to Christ. That's why, parents, it's so important to teach your children the, the Ten Commandments. They reflect the character of God and the call for us to, to love God and regard His holiness and love other people. The Old Testament shows us who God is, what He's like. It shows us our need for His grace and forgiveness through Jesus. And it points us to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's a vital part of God's revelation that we still need. Last week, after the, uh, the message on why we need the Old Testament, uh, one of our members, Felicia Hancock, shared some thoughts about how she, she asks questions when she reads the Old Testament. I thought it was so helpful that I wanted to suggest just a few questions to ask ourselves when we, we read the Old Testament, because face it, we read things in the Old Testament that are challenging. And my, my wonderful wife, who, who loves the Bible and knows the Bible really well, 
confessed to me yesterday. She said, I'm reading through the book of Leviticus, and I do not like it. I like reading, but I do it anyway. I know it's God's word, but I don't enjoy reading through the book of Leviticus. But here are a couple questions we might ask when we read those challenging things in the Old Testament about sacrifices and things we don't fully understand. Does it have something to teach me about God? Is it showing me something about God? Is it showing me something about sin? Is it showing me something about humanity? Is it showing me something about myself? And always important to ask, how does it point to Jesus and my need for his salvation? Now, the Apostle Paul was saying that there were those in his time who were misusing the law, the legalists, who were teaching, yeah, Jesus is good, but you've got to keep these laws. You've got to be circumcised. You really want to be saved. You've got to do these things. The law itself is good, but it must be understood in the right way. Now, we're studying the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, and it's, it's a challenging book to understand in some parts because of points that Paul makes, issues he raises, points he makes. And he, he uses a couple phrases in the next set of verses you see on the screen, the wor- verses we read just a moment ago, verses 9 through 11, that, that raise some questions. There are the statements about uh, sexual immorality, homosexuality, but I want to take a few minutes this morning to speak about a different word there. It's the word enslavers. And you may wonder, why would I want to talk about what the Bible really teaches about slavery? Because I find that there's great misunderstanding about what the Bible teaches here. Um, a student came up to me one Sunday after church, very graciously um, said to me, I can't accept the Bible because it supports slavery and it says God hates gays. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think I said to this effect, I think you're wrong about both of those. And I want to I address that this morning because I think a lot of people have the same concern. And some people referring to scripture, will say, well, you know, uh, the church supported slavery in the past, which is true. The South, in America, pre-Civil Wars days, particularly the church in the South, there were many churches who supported slavery and used scripture to do so. And so many will say, well, the church supported slavery in the, in the past. We know they're wrong about that. So today the church is wrong about, about this. This is why I think it's important to understand what the Bible really does teach. And in my opinion, any time Scripture is used to oppress a person or people, something's wrong. Something's terribly wrong. It's not God's God's purpose. So I want to just raise the issue this morning. Um, Does the Bible support slavery, in my, in my opinion, is a definite no. And before giving you six reasons I think the Bible does not support slavery, 
Um, I want to quote from a scholar, theologian, he's now dead, uh, Dr. Gleason Archer. And um, he wrote these words about the history of slavery. He notes that it must be recognized that it, slavery, um, has been practiced by, he says, every ancient people of which we have historical record, Egyptians, Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Phoenicians, um, Moabites, Ammonites, Greeks, Romans. He maintains that as the Bible, as Scripture began to be taught, there was a growing awareness that people had a dignity and were created in the image of God. Dr. Archer goes on to write, that a strong sentiment began to arise in Christendom and Christendom in criticism of slavery and a questioning of its right to exist. No equivalent movement toward abolition is discernible in any non-Christian civilization of which we have knowledge. Yet we know, well, many churches uh, over the years have supported slavery, and that was true in the South prior to the Civil War and after. And they use some of the verses we're going to look at this morning but I think they were used wrongly. Does the Bible support slavery? No. First, we, we have to recognize the Old Testament refers to slavery quite a bit, and it gave regulations for the practice of, of slavery. We see these words in the book of Deuteronomy, for example. Moses is giving regulations for Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews, the Jews. If your brother, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, uh, he'll serve you six years. In the seventh year, you'll let him go free. And when you let him go, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press, etc. And he reminds the Hebrews, you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And before the exodus with Moses, the Hebrews had been slaves for roughly 400 years. But we say, why why did God let it go on at all? And there are a lot of questions like that that arise from the Old Testament. Polygamy. Why did God allow some people to have multiple wives? Even King David. I, I don't know. But what comes to mind is something Jesus said when he was talking to the Pharisees, those legalists had come to him with a question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any reason at all? And Jesus said, have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh? And he goes on to say, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He rebukes them. And they said, then why did Moses allow us to, to write this certificate of divorce? And they took it to mean they could put their wives away for any reason. Here's what Jesus said. Because of your hardness of heart, but from the beginning it was not so. It would seem there were certain things allowed that were not God's perfect will as created in the beginning. When I see things I don't understand in the Old Testament, sometimes I ask myself the question, would this have been in existence if mankind had not sinned and rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden? And the answer 
to these questionable things, hard to understand things, bloodshed, is no. I chalk it up to the sin of humanity, many of the problems that exist and did exist in the world. Now let's move to the New Testament. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul teaches slaves how to live as believers in their present circumstances, but he does not uh, either promote or condemn the institution of slavery. And here's the passage that I think it is most troubling for Christians, and I think that, that churches in the past, uh, in, in our country, in the South, used to try to uh, maintain, promote the institution of slavery. The Apostle Paul, in the passage is very similar in, in Ephesians and Colossians, He's writing to believers about how to live as light in a dark world. He says, children, obey your parents. He's, he's spoken to wives. He's spoken to husbands. He addresses children, obey your parents. Now he addresses fathers, don't provoke your children. Now he addresses bondservants or slaves, obey your earthly masters, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work as if you're working for the Lord. Uh, uh, you'll receive the inheritance as a reward. And then he addresses masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. It's a bit of a warning not to uh, misuse these bondservants. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he not condemn slavery? In this context, he is not attempting to even address the rightness or wrongness of slavery or the rightness or wrongness of what their government's doing. In this context, he's teaching believers in whatever circumstances they find themselves in life to live as light in a dark world, to be different from the world around them. And that is why I think in this context he doesn't outright condemn slavery. That's not his purpose in this particular passage. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul does encourage slaves to gain their freedom if they have opportunity. He writes in 1 Corinthians 7, Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Next verse from Galatians. Paul teaches the equality of all people in Christ. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible for understanding the equality of of all human beings in Christ. As some say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and is true. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. Number five, in our passage today, 1 Timothy, Paul condemns the enslavement of people. And you see the word there, enslavers. It's an interesting history about this word. When the King James Version was translated in the 1600s, it was not translated this way. It was translated men-stealers. Now, when you hear the word men-stealers, what do you think of? I think of kidnapping. And the New King James renders it kidnappers. But the ESV, which provides us an excellent translation from the Greek language. As a footnote in my Bible says, this word should be taken to mean those who take someone captive to sell them into slavery. And the Apostle Paul is here condemning it uh, outright. Finally, the Apostle James provides, I think, 
the strongest possible condemnation of slavery. But people never think of this passage because it doesn't use the word slavery. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And his, his writing in the book of James, chapter 5, you know, people who think there's not much about wrath in the New Testament, I think they must not have read this. He sounds like an Old Testament prophet pronouncing woes when he writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. Wow, that is some strong language right there. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? I hope he's not talking about all people who, who have wealth because he'd be talking about a lot of us. He continues, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These are people that have a lot of wealth that was gained on the backs of laborers who were not paid for their laborer. And in my opinion, that is a mighty strong condemnation of the practice of slavery. Again, it's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing that many churches in the past have used some of the passages we've looked at in support of slavery and did not condemn it outright. Um, many Christians did, however, condemn it strongly in those times from the time of John Wesley to Charles Finney, American Presbyterian revivalist, uh, renounced it in the 1800s strongly throughout his ministry, as did the great uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon, strongest condemnation for uh, the practice of slavery. I think we can all agree it's a horrible thing. It was and is a horrible sin against God and humanity. Now, before we close the message, I want to take just a moment to pray for someone. read an article this past week about a, a young woman in Nigeria. Her name is Leah. And... Um, 2014, we read about a, a terrible um, thing that happened in Nigeria um, in a place called Chibok. It was a girls' school in Boko Haram. Terrible, militant, cult-like, terrorist-like group kidnapped these young women, and later some of them were returned. But this year, February 19th, um, the same group, Boko Haram, uh, took 110 girls uh, from a uh, government school, took them captive. Well, a month later, they returned out of the 110, 104 girls, five had died in that month of captivity already. Uh, they returned 104 because they learned that they were all Muslims. Boko Haram means, loosely translated, Western education is forbidden. But the, the Mus Muslims, one month later, they returned. There was great rejoicing. There was shouting in the streets. There's people celebrating. But the Muslim girls who returned told them there was one person they would not return. 
and it was Leah Sharibu because she would not embrace Islam. She was a Christian. She was a believer in Jesus. The other Muslim girls even tried to get her to wear the hijab and to change her name and all, but she, she felt she'd be compromising and did not want to renounce her faith. So she is still there, the, the lone captive enslaved there. And um, as we've prayed for our brother Andrew Brunson in Turkey this morning, I'd like to just ask that we pray for Leah for God's hand upon her. You know, I think of the story in the, the Old Testament when the Pharaoh in Egypt uh, took Abraham's wife and all, all of a sudden God plagued his whole household until he let her go. Um, let's take a moment now just right where you are. If you want to pray with somebody seated next to you, feel free to pray quietly or out loud, then I'll, I'll close this up in just a moment. Father, we are your church. We're your people. We come in the name of Jesus. You've told us to come with confidence before your throne of grace to obtain mercy, to find grace to help in our time of need. And we want to pray for this young woman, Leah Sharibu. We pray for your grace and peace and the power of your Holy Spirit to be mighty upon her today. We ask that you would do whatever is necessary to protect and shield her and bring about her release. Father, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We pray for her parents who are Christians who every day at 6 a.m. and p.m. are reading scripture and asking you to protect and bring about the release of their daughter, that your peace would rest upon them, the power of your spirit would fill them. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.